study in the Pilgrim's Progress and uh, some two weeks at least and we take it back up now <clears throat> from that reading uh, where we are told that they also gave to the other young women you remember that uh, one had besought them for this glass that was in uh, mercy had besought the the uh, household there for this looking glass in which she could see herself her humiliation and also the shepherd the Lord himself and his glory she could see in this glass and she had requested to have it and said that if she thought if she couldn't have it she would miscarry and our brother John very appropriately made the comment that had she not had it she would indeed most certainly have miscarried and uh, so the glass was given to her and so then Bunyan tells us of the others the rest he said they also gave to the other young women such things as they desired and to their husbands great commendations for that they had joined with Mr. Greatheart in the slaying of giant despair and the demolishing of Doubting Castle. These young ladies certainly married well, did they not? They married well. <clears throat> and their husbands were rightly <clears throat> merited commendations from the shepherds of the place for their bravery, for their loyalty for their commitment for the work that they had set about to do and then he says that about Christiana's neck the shepherds put a bracelet and so did they about the necks of her four daughters also they put earrings in their ears and jewels in their foreheads they were adorned and not for beauty but out of respect and to indicate the the worth and value of their lives and their service uh, to the Lord of the place. When they were minded to go hence, they let them go in peace, but gave not to them those certain cautions which before were given to Christian and his companion. Now, they did not give them the counsel that they gave to these other pilgrims at the same place and at the same juncture in their lives why is that why did they not do that the reason was Bunyan says for that these had great heart to be their guide who was one that was well acquainted with things and so could give them their cautions more seasonably to wit even when the danger was well nigh approaching. What cautious, what cautions Christian and his companion had received of the shepherds, they had also lost by that the time was come that they had need to put them in practice. Wherefore, here was the advantage that this company had over the other. This was a, this was a decided advantage. 
that they had great heart in their attendance. I always marvel, and I always mention it to you, how that I marvel in our God's providence that he would have brought us to this place in the message this morning, this place in the book of Judges that was uh, took up this subject in the morning message. And here it is again in this place in Pilgrim's Progress. I did not coordinate these things. I don't orchestrate them. It's in the providence of God. Bunyan has taken up here this subject, the specific subject, of what a great advantage it was for them to have this great heart to be in attendance with them. Scott has a wonderful note on it. You have it there before you, maybe. He says, the author embraces every opportunity of pointing out the important advantages of the pastoral office when faithfully executed by which he meant the regular care of a stated minister over a company of professed Christians who are his particular charge, have voluntarily placed themselves under his instruction, seek counsel from him in all their difficulties, and pay regard to his private admonitions, being convinced that he uprightly seeks their spiritual welfare, and is capable of promoting it. You understand this is a reciprocal, reciprocal relationship. He has a duty to do these things. They have a desire for him to do them. This is as it should be in a well-ordered biblical church. They are convinced, says Scott, the the, the body of people are convinced of two things. That he is upright, that he uprightly is seeking their spiritual welfare. And secondly, that he is capable of promoting it. These are the two things they believe. Scott says nothing so much tends to the establishment and consistent conduct of believers or the permanent success of the gospel as a proper reciprocal attention of pastors and their flocks to each other. This reciprocal relationship. The general way of preaching and hearing with little or no connection, cordial, unreserved intercourse, or even uh, acquaintance between ministers and their congregations. The general way of preaching is to carry on without without any of these personal, uh, unreserved relationships between the congregation and the minister. With continual changes from one place to another, uh, with continual changes from one place to another, these things may tend to spread a superficial knowledge of evangelical truth more widely. But through the lack of seasonable reproof, counsel, encouragement, or admonition, the general directions delivered from the pulpit will seldom be recollected when they are most wanted. Hence it is that professors 
so often miss their way, that is those who profess Christ, are taken in the flatterer's net and fall asleep on the enchanted ground and a faithful guide ever at hand to give the caution or direction at the time is the proper remedy for which no adequate substitute can be found. But as it is much easier to preach to lar at large on general topics, and after a few sermons delivered in one congregation, to go over the same ground again in another place, than to perform duly the several parts of the arduous office which is sustained by the stated pastor of a regular congregation. And as it is far more agreeable to nature to be exempted from private admonitions than to be troubled with them, it may be feared that this important subject will not at present be duly attended to. Not likely. Not likely, Brother Scott, not likely that it's going to be attended to. No private admonitions, no private instruction, no private help for people. <clears throat> uh, I had uh, someone recently express to me their feelings on this subject, although not in the context, obviously, of Bunyan, but on this context of uh, a pastor's role in speaking with his congregants. And this person's very candid and bold response was, when I need him, I'll call him. When I don't call him, he needs to stay out of my business. That was how it was put to me. That would be wonderful. <laughs> that would be really, really wonderful uh, if you could do that. But if you have a calling from God, then it is your your covenanted agreement that you will function as their guide. And uh, Mr. Greatheart was there to do a job, and he would do his job. And uh, that is as it should be, as we preached partially, somewhat, in the message this morning. Bunyan goes on and says, from thence they went on singing. And here's what they said. Behold, how fitly are the stages set for their relief that pilgrims are become and how they us receive without one let that make the other life our mark and home. What novelties they have to us they give that we Though pilgrims joyful lives may live, they do upon us too such things bestow that show we pilgrim, we pilgrims are where'er we go. So they're singing this song, and uh, I think we get to another one of Bunyan's songs uh, somewhere. Uh, anyway, uh, he has them throughout his writing. Uh, these poems and songs that Bunyan writes for his characters. I confess that for my part, I, his is not my favorite poetry. 
uh, I just sometimes struggle to know how he could have left that that way. But there's nothing wrong with it. It's just not to my particular individual taste. But it always has a good message. It always says what needs to be said. And what he's selling us is what these pilgrims are singing as they now go on their way quite happily with gifts bestowed on them and congratulations bestowed on them. They send them on their way with none other than great heart in their attendance. When they were gone from the shepherds, they quickly came to the place where Christian met with one turnaway that dwelt in the town of apostasy. Wherefore of him, Mr. Greatheart, their guide did now put them in mind, saying, this is the place where Christian met with one Turnaway, who carried with him the character of his rebellion at his back. And this I have to say concerning this man. He would hearken to no counsel, but once a falling, persuasion could not stop him. When he came to the place where the cross and the sepulchre were, he did with one that bid him look. He did meet with one that bid him look there. But he gnashed with his teeth and stamped and said he was resolved to go back to his own town. Before he came to the gate, he met with evangelists who offered to lay hands on him to turn him into the way again. But this turnaway resisted him. And having done much despite unto him, he got away over the wall and so escaped his hand. This is one man called Turnaway. And again, executing faithfully his office, Greatheart steps up to instruct them about this man. They arrive at this place where Pilgrim had met him. And he takes that opportunity to open to them the story and tell them what happened and teach them, teach them for their own admonition. So then they went on and just at the place where little faith formerly was robbed, there stood a man with his sword drawn and his face all over with blood. Then said Greatheart, Who art thou? The man made answer, saying, I am one whose name is Valiant for Truth. I am a pilgrim, and I'm going to the celestial city. Now, Bunyan here introduces a character that will occupy much attention in his writing and therefore will occupy much of our attention. This is one valiant for truth. And when we first meet him, he is standing in the way, in the right way, and he is standing with his sword drawn, and his face is covered in blood. If you get the image, in this description of this man, valiant for truth. There's an interesting insight, in my opinion, 
Uh, there's an interesting insight in uh, the writing of uh, uh, J.A. Kerbane in his volume on the people of the pilgrimage. Wonderful, wonderful commentary on uh, Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, he has a great insight right here. I want to pause in the reading. We're not going to get far anyway, because as I say, this 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 valiant for truth is going to occupy a part considerable part of writing. Kerbane says the second part of the pilgrim owes not a little of its charm to the repeated additions which are made to its company as they journey on. In refreshing the flow of the narrative by the incoming of new figures, there's your literary technique, uh, Tinker. He, he refreshes the flow of the narrative by incoming of new figures. In broadening the variety of the group by gradual and not too plenteous foregatherings of pilgrims, Bunyan is true at once to his subject and his art. With their one aim, their one destination, their one king, their one road, yet with differences in their pace and in their occasions of delay, what more likely than that pilgrims should fall in with pilgrims? Or that a banded group of pilgrims should grow as the distance lessens between itself and the city. You see what he's saying? They're all going to the same city. And they're coming from different places. And it is unavoidable that as they individually move toward the city, it's unavoidable that they're going to come together along the way and merge and find one another. And even as a matter of art, there is something fine in this picture of men and women hailing from different quarters, moving forth without concert, or perhaps without any knowledge of each other's movements, and yet, by and by, coming to greet each other in the road together. As those who are urging their steps toward the same spot of horizon, with their hearts loyal to the same Lord, whose horizon, whose road it is. Nor is the picture finer than the reality or the reading of it finer than its actual experience. It is the fate of valiant, valiant of tr for truth, Kerbane says, it is the fate of valiant in the story that not only do we learn little of what his history has been before we see him, but we have little of his history left us to observe even after he has come into our sight. Where little faith was robbed and valiant was assailed is not a great way 
from the river which borders the territory of the city. Mm. Herbane is looking at the geography of this allegory. And he says, don't miss the fact that the place where little faith was robbed and valiant was assailed is not a great way from the river that borders the territory of the city. It is his last conflict that he has just fought when we break in upon him at the moment of victory. We could almost have wished to see him find good cause for unleashing his Jerusalem blade again by the side of the hero guide who so delighted in him as a man of his hands. But his period of strife takes end with his period of solitude as Christians did before him. Doubtless he had need of the change lest his pilgrim life should become too one-sided and should be lacking in the calmer and richer virtues which prosper best among the tranquillities of fellowship in the truth for which he has been so valiant. Kerbane is simply saying, we find him after the battle and all is quiet. And he said, no doubt, Valiant needed this quiet. He needed this solitude, lest his life should become one-sided. All war and no peace. He says, only when a man like Valiant comes out at last into the course of quietude, only then he may sweeten the juices of his character under the still sunbeams. It must go for something that he brings a well-weathered heroism with him into the stormless light. I know of some men, I have known of men, who spent their entire life seeming to do battle. (laughs) And they did not enjoy this quietude after the battle in which they could they could develop sweeten the juices of their character I like that term Isn't that a wonderful expression sweeten the juices of their character in the quietude that's a fine thought that's a fine thought Herbane has a great deal of insight here so we introduced to this man, valiant for truth. We find him, he's standing with his sword drawn and his face is covered with blood. Now as I was in my way, there were three men. So he says, they ask him who he was. Greatheart asked him, who are you? And he said, He said, uh, I am one whose name is valiant for truth. I'm a pilgrim and I'm going to the celestial city. Now, as I was in my way, there were three men did beset me and propounded unto me these three things. They gave him three choices. Whether I would become one of them or go back from whence I came. 
or die upon the place. To the first I answered, I had been a true man for a long season. Therefore, it could not be expected that I should now cast in my lot with thieves. And then they demanded what I would say to the second. So I told them the place from whence I came, had I not found incommodity there, I had not forsaken it at all. But finding it altogether unsuitable to me, I am very, uh, very unprofitable for me and very unprofitable for me. I forsook it for this way. As to the second proposition, you know, go back where you came from. He said, look, I've already come from there. I'm not going back. Then they asked him what he said to the third. I told them my life costs far more dear than I should lightly give it away. Besides, you have nothing to do thus to put things to my choice. Wherefore, at your peril, be it if you meddle. He warned them, you better leave me alone. You have no business putting these choices to me in the first place. It is not your business to be putting these choices to me. I'm not going back. And I'm not falling in with you. And I'm not going to trifle away my life. But you'd be well advised not to meddle with me. Hallelujah. We come to this place. This is a wonderful, beautiful picture. It's great stories, great pictures in our book. Pictures in other books of this scene right here. It's a great scene. It's great. But, but don't miss the lesson. Don't miss the lesson. Remember what his name is? Valiant for truth. When you're valiant for truth, you're going to fall in among others that are going to give you options so they think. They're going to press you to either go back on that truth, go back on that truth, back up off of that truth, or fall in with them, or you're going to pay for it. You're going to suffer for it. You're going to pay for it. Remember, he's standing here with blood all over his face and his sword drawn. They said, you're going to suffer for this. Some of you have had family members who did the same thing. They've hit you with one option after another option after another option until finally they come down to this. You're going to pay for it. You're going to pay for this. You need to back off of this truth and go with us or you're going to pay for this. Well, God bless Valiant for truth. He said, I can't, uh, I can't lightly give my life away. But I'll tell you what, it's at your peril that you meddle with me. Truth, I wrote in the margin of my book here, Truth will always be assailed by fools and the valiant will always be forced to fight. 
they really won't give you they really won't give you any options you will be forced to fight if you're going to stand I've me said truth will make a man valiant and valor for truth will make a pilgrim fight with wild-headed, inconsiderate, pragmatic opposers. The blood he loses in such a battle is his honor and the scars he gets are his glory. Who was it? I don't know if it was Satan I got it from or someone. The Scottish said when somebody said when truth is in the balances, obstinance is a virtue. <laughs> At your peril, you meddle with me. Then these three, to wit, wild headed, wild head, inconsiderate, and pragmatic drew upon me and I also drew upon them so we fell to it one against three for the space of above three hours they have left upon me as you see some of the marks of their valor and have also carried away with them some of mine can I just pause there and say to you that when you go to war for truth you're going to wear some scars you're not going to get out of this without hurt be scars they are but just now gone I suppose they might as the saying is Hear your horse dash, and so they betook themselves to flight. They got out of here. He said they they left here just before you got here. They got gone. They must have maybe they heard you coming. I don't know, but they just left. Overton said, "How much we may learn from what is here related in this." Excellent pilgrim. How greatly it tends to our own security to be of good courage. Sooner than comply with the sinful terms that are propounded to him, this brave pilgrim would boldly resist even unto blood, although he had to contend, although he had to contend singly and against three. He continued to resist until his opponents were obliged to fly. All the adversaries of the real Christian, like our adversary the devil, are obliged at length to flee when they are manfully resisted. It is true all are not courageous alike, as every loyal subject of the king is not the king's champion. So every lover of truth is not valiant for truth. But this is his infirmity. If he had more courage, he would have more comfort and more success. Bible says, add to your faith, courage. 
However fearful to sight and sense may be the odds, only let the real Christian go boldly forth in the name of the Lord against all his adversaries. Let him be strong and very courageous, and not a man of them shall be able to stand before him. Though an host should encamp against him, he need not fear. Though war should rise up against him, in this may he be confident. Let him stand firm as seeing him that is invisible. Let him lift up his heart for secret supplies of strength from above. Those supplies shall surely be sent in due time of need. Oh, believer, whatever adversaries may rise up against you, wait on the Lord. Be of good courage and be ye shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. There is a note in Scott at this point. He says, from the names given to the opponents with whom this pilgrim fought, we may infer that the author meant to represent by them certain wild enthusiasts who, not having ever duly considered any religious subject, officiously intrude themselves in the way of professors to perplex their minds and persuade them that unless they adopt their reveries or superstitions, they cannot be saved. <laughs> an ungovernable and ungovernable imagination, a mind incapable of sober reflection, mm. and a dogmatizing spirit characterize these enemies of the truth. Boy, how many people do I know right now that I could call their name? That that is a graphic description of them. My goodness. Ungovernable imagination. A mind incapable of sober reflection. And a dogmatizing spirit. My goodness. They assault religious persons with specious reasonings, cavillings, objections, cavilling objections, confident assertions, bitter reproaches, proud boastings, sarcastical censures, and rash judgments. Hmm. They endeavor to draw them over to their party or to drive them from attending to religion at all or to terrify them with the fears of damnation in their present endeavors to serve God and find his salvation. Whatever company of persons we suppose that the author had in view, we may learn from the passage what our strength, hope, and conduct ought to be when we are thus assailed. The word of God, used in faith and with fervent and persevering prayer, will enable us at length to silence such dangerous assailants. And if we, and if we be valiant for the truth, and meekly contend for it, amidst revilings, menacing, menaces and contempt, we may hope to confirm others also and to promote the common cause
McGuire said, the hero of this scene of the progress is now presented to our view in the person of this bold and steadfast man. This point of the road is dangerous, haunted by robbers and bandits. Here, little faith suffered loss. But now a braver and more valiant pilgrim is encountered who knows his strength and the source of his strength. He has fought a lengthened conflict and his assailants being put to flight. He is found by Greatheart standing in the roadway, sword in hand, with marks of sore combat, wounds, and blood. From the names given to these assailants, it would appear that this assault was not of the same character as that of Little Faith. The pilgrim of the former narrative had encountered spiritual enemies from within, faint heart, mistrust, guilt. While this pilgrim seems to have been assailed by carnal enemies from without, as indicated by their names, Wildhead, inconsiderate, pragmatic. It was fought against, it was fought against, however, it, uh, sorry, the conflict, however, was a severe one. It was fought against great odds. And victory inclined to the side of faith and truth. He fought in the strength of his king, whom he implored to send him aid and help. He fought with the proper weapon, the true-tempered sword of the spirit, quick and sharper than a two-edged sword. He wielded this sword with a skill and constancy, and hence his undoubted victory. He now joins the pilgrim company and forms another addition. An addition, too, that promises to make the band more strong and steadfast to bear concluding stages of the journey. So, along comes Valiant for Truth. Greatheart responds and says, But here was great odds, three against one. <laughs> Don't you sometimes feel that when you're under one of these assaults? Valiant for truth said, tis true, but little or more or nothing to him that has the truth on his side. Though an host should encamp against me, said one, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me in this, will I be confident? Besides, said he, I have read in some records that one man has fought an army. And how did many and how did many, how many did Samson slay with the jawbone of an ass? And then said the guide, Why did you not cry out that some might have come in for your super? Valiant said, So I did to my king, who I knew could hear me and afford invisible help, and that was sufficient for me. One that's valiant for truth, can I just tell you, take it to your heart. One that's valiant for truth is going to have to learn the only real help is from the Lord. And call on brothers to pray for you, help you, encourage you. We ought to bear up one another and that's our, that's our privilege to do that. But in the end of the day, you're going to have to come to grips with the reality that one that really is going to have to help you is the Lord.
Only the Lord can help you. Valiant for Truth has given a glorious testimony here. When I read these kinds of passages, I'm reminded that it's no wonder this glorious ancient allegory has disappeared from the curriculum of our Baptist churches. They have no stomach for characters like Valiant for Truth. No place for it. No wonder Bunyan is unheard of among this generation. But may God help us. We'll stop there today. We've covered actually quite a bit of ground. Quite a bit of truth. Is there any that would like to add a comment, question, or thought for us to entertain? Baptists uh, constantly encounter these uh, anomalies among uh, men that we study. How do they? We were having a conversation at the table yesterday with uh, Scoot and uh, other. We were talking about the fact that they, some of their most abiding and strongly held. Uh, dictates or, or little rules and things. They they can't see the error of them themselves. The one the one that always strikes me is the Presbyterian tenet that so boasted that which is not written is forbidden. <laughs> well then, I need a text for you baptizing these babies, and you don't have one. So by your rule, that's got to be forbidden. And then comments like this from Scott talking about their voluntary covenanting together when in reality he didn't believe that practice that in his own ministerial life. These are the inconsistencies that we as Baptists have the painful painful joy of uh, of encountering and exposing in others inconsistency
one does have to wonder if his uh, hand flowed long in the inkwell before he should write the <laughs> Certainly didn't give a lot of thought to what that might do. Yeah, sure, absolutely. It is also noteworthy though that the end wire point is that three other as one called the roads that attack little as opposed to value. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. Different saints attacked in a different way. To the same end, but in a different way. Wouldn't it have been wonderful if Greatheart could have been there when the when at the same time that Valiant got there and met these roads? But at the time, in the purposes of his pilgrimage, he was alone. I'm sure Bunyan very much felt the experience of all of this in his own heart as he's writing these things. In other words, these are not things conjured out of his imagination. These are things, no doubt, he has personally experienced, painfully experienced. All right, let us pray together. Father, we thank you for the study.